You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Speak Podcast, the podcast for people with ideas and stories. I'm Jason Martin, the engineer and one of the co-leaders here at Speak. Today's episode features talks relating to our micro-theme, recovery. Our featured published speakers for this episode are Gail Damiano, Chef Eric Levine, and Peter Vox. Be sure to listen all the way to the end of the episode, as I know you will be moved by all three of our speakers today. So, let's go ahead and dive in. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Fred P. Bannon, the builder and co-leader here at Speak. In our first talk, we have a moving talk by published speaker Gail Damiano titled Life, a choose-your-own-adventure story. This talk was shared during our Speak Freedom event at the Belmo Movies and Showplace in Belmo, New York on July 13th, 2023. Gil's talk is a captivating journey from alcoholism and addiction towards empowerment and freedom. You know, her story demonstrates the incredible impact of making better choices just day by day and never giving up, no matter how challenging the path may seem. During this talk, Gil gets really vulnerable and bare her soul about her journey. Her pursuit of freedom from addiction is an inspiring reminder of the strength that is within all of us. Let's hear from Gail as she presents Life, a Choose Your Own Adventure story. Through my 20s and into my 30s, my life was on autopilot, waking up for work after an average of four hours of drunken sleep each night and slapping the alarm, going through the emotions of what I called a normal life. Slap the alarm at 6 a.m., drag myself to the shower, or just splash some water on my face and use a washcloth as I was usually in a hurry. Brush my teeth, head out the door, holding my head from the spinning and the pounding nightmare of a hangover that was going to get worse throughout the day. As I stumbled down the street towards the train station and towards the only thing I was looking forward to at 7 a.m. on a weekday, the 90-minute commute to the city. <sighs> yes, sleep. I slept so hard on those train rides. Once I woke myself up out of a drunken sleep, I was leaning all the way into the aisle, mouth open, drool, everything. 
As I moved myself back up into my seat, I couldn't help but feel the whiskey sweat all over my body as I slumped back down and fell asleep and feeling ashamed. Another time on the train, I woke myself up out of a haze with a very loud fart. And I immediately looked around, I'm like, did anybody else hear that? And it was a little twilight zone moment. I was the only one on the train. Holy shit, I gotta get off the train. I'm at the station, time to go to work. Binge drinking was in my blood. I grew up in the Midwest, it's just what we did. I was surrounded by people who drank daily and often, and I saw it as normal, and it became the thing that I endured at all costs. I grew rugged and rough around the edges. I drank to blackout many nights, and I would hear stories of things I did for days or weeks after. You would think after getting alcohol poisoning at 16 years old, I would never drink again. By the time I was 19, I was drinking every day. I was not a fully expressed human being yet at that point. I only gave myself permission to express myself when alcohol was involved. Alcohol was my excuse to make extremely stupid decisions. And it was my get out of jail free card in a way. I used the I was drunk alibi to get out of a lot of sticky situations. That first decade, from 19 to 29 years old, I was sloppy. But that second decade of drinking, I got professional. I learned that I could supplement my drinking with amphetamines. And this meant that I could drink for longer periods of time, and I told myself <laughs> that I could be more coherent and still get wasted somehow. I knew deep down that that level of drinking was not maintainable. And I had a mini epiphany when I was 32 years old as I sat there drunk. I heard a voice buried very deep within me whispering out, Gail, Gail, take some pictures of yourself. Document what you look like right now because one day you are going to get through this and you're going to want to look back and see how far you've come and you're going to rejoice or something. I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew I had to take these pictures. So I listened and I took the pictures. And initially I didn't want to show them to anyone. In fact, I almost deleted them immediately after I took them, but I didn't, I held on to them. And the truth is I do look back on those now as a reminder how far I have come from that extremely sad, depressed, suicidal, angry, confused young woman who felt she did not have a voice and more importantly didn't trust that she knew how to use it back then I did not know how to exp express myself or to calm myself or to be with people unless alcohol was involved that tiny voice that I heard when I took those pictures was urging me to take good care of myself so that I could have a chance at a great life. I began pouring myself into my career. I started working out. I even quit smoking cigarettes. For me, at that time, I had been smoking over 18 years already. And I was the person that said out loud many times, I will never quit smoking. Inside, I heard, who the hell am I without cigarettes anyway? 
I was at about two packs a day when I quit. So naturally, I started running instead. My practice runs were quickly totaling 15 to 20 miles a week. That's not counting any of the races. And I formed a new reward. Go for a run and then start drinking. The amphetamines were my fuel. I told myself that they helped me move through my hangovers more easily. Those little suckers got me moving. Before I knew it, I was climbing the corporate ladder, making more and more impact in my corporate career. And then 2016 happened. That's the year I fell deepest in it. My body was bloated. My mind was confused more than ever. My emotions were completely out of whack. I was stressed to the max. I was pushing harder than ever to perform in my executive sales career and in my life, trying to look like I had my shit together. Turns out I couldn't hide anymore. I was hiding bottles and I was taking secret swigs of freezer vodka, chugging whole beers, sneaking shots when people weren't looking, you know, so they didn't see how much I was actually drinking. My entire life was a crumbling facade. One night, as I stood in my living room, swaying with my fifth or sixth drink in my hand and slurring some randomness in my husband's direction, he stopped in the doorway and he turned and he looked at me and he said, I think you have a drinking problem. They say that you hear something at least three times before it clicks. I knew that was not the first time I heard that. And I stood there swaying and stunned, not knowing what to say. So I shrugged it off with a, yeah, probably, or something like that. And I continued to change the subject throughout the evening because I had become astute at doing that. But it had me. It was like a bolt of lightning. Boom, it hit me. There was no way I was able to not see this now. It was bringing back a conversation that had been screaming within me for decades. This was finally my chance to stop fucking around and heal myself. And it scared the shit out of me. I did not know what to do, but I was gonna do it anyway. As I leaned into the idea of sobriety, I chose not to go into a program. Instead, I said, I'm gonna focus on healing my physical body. I found an acupuncturist who was my healer and my coach, and I went all in on my life. I just surrendered to trust that this was all gonna work out somehow. And I found myself drinking only six days a week instead of seven, and then five days a week, and then four, and then when I got to three days a week, I thought, holy, sh this is a miracle. And then for a tiny second, I thought, I, wait, maybe I can manage this. I can still have five Manhattans a day, right? But only three days a week, I got it. But I knew better. Alcohol was consuming me, not the other way around. There were days I didn't know if I was gonna make it. There were moments that ticked by so slowly, I didn't know if I was gonna drink or if I was gonna die. But I didn't do either of those things. I held on. And right before my 40th birthday, I got sober. February 3rd, 2017. If anybody's counting, that's 24 years of drinking. It's now been six and a half years without alcohol, amphetamines, or cigarettes. And I'm still amazed every day 
walking to work, walking anywhere without a hangover, loving my life and myself has been the biggest blessing. I even healed my body so deeply. I was able to conceive naturally something doctors told me was not going to happen. It was outside of the realm of possibility. I became a mom at 42 years old. I made a choice. In my most vulnerable of moments, to heal myself. And then I made another choice, and another choice, and another, and another, until I recognized that I had formed new habits based on where I desired to be, not based on what was right in front of me. This is a mindset shift. It sounds simple, right? Focus on your desires, not your circumstances. That's simple. It is, and it is not. It will take everything you've got some days, especially in the beginning, and it is worth every second. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible transformative journey we just heard from Gail. Her story reminds me that even in the midst of adversity, we hold the pen to our own narrative. Her journey from relying on substances to cope to ultimately choosing sobriety, health, and self-love, you know, it's a vivid reminder that our decisions can lead us down vastly different paths. Gail's story beautifully illustrates that it's never too late to rewrite our own stories or to choose a different adventure that aligns with our deepest desires. The lesson she shares is such a simple yet profound one. Focus on your aspirations, not your limitations. This shift in perspective, though challenging, can be the key to unlocking a life of fulfillment. May her journey inspire us to approach life's challenges with courage, to embrace change, and to wholeheartedly choose our own adventure. Up next is another talk from our Speak Love pop-up event, which took place on February 16th, 2023 in Farmingdale at 317 Maine. This talk takes us on a heartfelt and introspective journey with Chef Eric Levine. In this talk, he courageously reflects on his life, breaking it down into different phases and how they have shaped him. It all began with love, followed by moments of neglect, chaos, and pain. Yet through resilience, perseverance, surrender, and healing, Chef Eric founds his way back to purpose and love. Let's embark on this emotional, inspiring, and transformational adventure together. Here's Chef Eric Levine with his talk, Phases. Phases. Phase one, it was a summer of love. My dad, my mom, both hippies. It was a day that I came into this world. My father being a hippie at Woodstock, my mother giving birth to me, not at Woodstock. It was kind of the place where uh, the chaos became, became real. It was the moment that things spiraled out of control. Uh, I knew that I was destined to become something great. My grandmother was the one person who kept on persevering and saying, great things are coming, despite the chaos, despite the insanity, despite all the things around you that are pulling you down but she was the one. Let me explain how I got there. 
phase two, as a child, a young boy, eight years old, I was molested by a family member. Someone who was trusted, somebody who was put into place to protect me. Someone who created this insanity, this world of hell that I was forged into. Someone who betrayed me and betrayed the trust that my family gave him. He created a monster, a monster that wasn't pretty, that wasn't full of love but full of hate, a monster that later I learned how to control and learned how to become a great monster. That's what I knew at that time. That's what I was, a monster. Phase three for me was the kitchen. 11-year-old me, little guy, walks into a kitchen, fire, yelling, screaming, drugs, alcohol. It was home. It was a comfort zone. It was a place that I could relate to. The chaos at home, the chaos in the kitchen became the same. So by 11 years old, 11 and a half, I had my first light of cocaine, which was pretty impressive when you're 11 years old and that's what your world is about. By 12 years old, I was dealing drugs to my friends, uh, but I was very protective. I was very protected by people around me uh, because I was an earner. Uh, and when you earn, you're always in good company. So the world became what it was for me, uh, the spiral. But there's another lifetime. It was another way for me to get out of the darkness that I thought I could get out of by doing the drugs. Phase four, the spiral continued. My relationships with people was angry. It was violent. Hell, when I was 13 years old, I had a fist fight with my stepfather on Thanksgiving Day. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, Eric. Here's a fistful of teeth. Lessons were learned. Life happened. Chaos continued in my life, and it continued to grow. But I found my place. Even with these low, dirty, down, scumbag people in my life, I found my place, and it was home for the moment. I didn't know this, but the next step of life was coming for me. Phase five. It was kind of at the end of phase four where I wound up in Central Park, uh, half naked, a needle of heroin in my toes, bleeding out of my nose, freezing in the snow. And I felt the hand of God for the first time in my life. I felt what it was like to be loved. And I heard a voice, it said no more. So I stood up, put my wet jacket on, my wet shirt on, and I walked from Central Park to Brooklyn, to my church. Where Father Pete explained to me that I had been touched by the hand of God. I was alive for the first time. I was actually able to feel something more than hate for the first time in my life. Something was coming, something big. Didn't know what it was, but it was something huge. As life went by, I progressed in my career and things started to really happen. I was getting international recognition, national recognition, loads of awards, loads of praise for what I was doing in my career. 
Then I turned 29, and everything stopped. I was hit from my, with my first diagnosis of cancer at 29. And I've been through more cancer than I cared to talk about, I cared to admit, and doctors are baffled by it because for all intents and purposes, I probably should be dead. I was scheduled on September 12th to appear on a Food Network show called Chopped. The day before, September 11th, the wonderful day that that is, I was told by my oncologist that I had, a, uh, I had terminal cancer and I had six to eight months to live. So I can tell you that when I woke up the next morning on September 12th to go to the Food Network, uh, the family asked me, well, what are you doing? Where are you going? And the only response that I had, which is typical me, is, well, I'm going to go win a show or die trying and uh, wound up winning. In the moment that I'll call phase six, I had a moment of clarity. I had a moment of purpose. I realized that in this competition, I could win and I could go home a winner. But more importantly, I had the moment of clarity that I could beat this cancer. That no matter what I did, no matter what happened in my life at this moment, that I could persevere. At least try. And if I win and I die, I die a winner. And if I lose and I die, what are they gonna say? This guy sucks, he couldn't beat cancer or win a competition? I'll take my chance. And I did wind up winning. I can't explain to you what it's like when someone tells you that you're going to die, that you're given a death sentence. But what I can tell you is what it's like when they say you are cancer free, that you survived something that most people wouldn't. I was diagnosed with a uh, rare form of chronic lymphocytic leukemia called Richter syndrome. Very rare, very, very deadly. So when my oncologist told me I had six to eight months to live, I had a choice. It was another phase in my life, an opportunity in my life to either sit back and be average, which wasn't what I was built for, or to fire it up and step up and fight as hard as I can to beat this. And beat it, I did. Through trauma came triumph. No one said it would ever be easy. No one said that I would ever be normal. Normal doesn't suit me, nor does average. But the one thing that came out of everything in my life is that I know my purpose and my why now. I know that my reason to live is to serve, is to serve others, my staff, my family, my people, you, the world, the universe. The biggest takeaway for me has been that there is hope, there is faith. And at the end of the day, like my mom says, there is always, always love. Love's the answer, and thank you. That was Chef Eric Levine with his talk, Phases, from the February 16th, 2023 Speak Pop-Up, Speak Love, which took place on Stage 317 in 317 Maine in Farmingdale, New York. 
I'm George Andriopoulos, the architect and co-leader here at Speak. It was so interesting working with Eric because this is a guy that is actually used to being on camera. This is a chop champion. This is a guy that's been on TV a number of times, whether it's guest segments on the news, whether it's cooking shows on the Food Network. He understands what it means to be under that microscope, under the camera, and to speak to an audience. But it's always such a different experience when you get on stage to do a talk like this. Chef Eric really, really put the work in, and I was so happy to be able to collaborate with him. He was a student in this process. He came to me and said, hey, I want to learn as much as I can. I want to make myself better at this. And that's all we can ask for from our speakers who embark on looking at these three moments, the moment of truth, moment of transformation, moment of impact when they write these talks. It was a pleasure working with Chef Eric. And I think that a lot of people will learn something from his journey that can really help them in their lives to avoid some of the situations that Chef Eric was in. So we thank Chef Eric for his honesty and for stepping into the spotlight and giving his speak talk. Our next talk comes from published speaker Peter Vox with his talk title, My Anxiety and Depression Helps Others. And this talk takes us on a meaningful and impactful journey. This was presented at our Speak Freedom event that took place on July 13th, 2023 in Belmore, New York at the Belmore Movie and Showplace Theater. You know, Peter's story is one of strength and resilience. He opens up about his personal battle with anxiety and depression, sharing how he faced these challenges head on, even enduring five commitments to a psychiatric hospital all in one year. From these struggles, Peter discovered a powerful purpose. And Peter talks really for me and highlights the potential that we all have to use our difficult moments to inspire hope in others. Now, without further ado, let's listen to Peter as he shares his deeply vulnerable and moving story that will have you at the edge of your seat. Here's Peter with My Anxiety and Depression Helps Others. On August 21st, 2019, I took approximately 15 Ativan. I laid down on a beanbag chair and I didn't care if I never woke up. This would be my second suicide attempt in 2019 and the third one in my life. This last attempt came about as a culmination of six years of significant life-changing events, a bitter divorce, bankruptcy, the death of my father, a car accident with subsequent back surgery, which ended my drumming career, and I was forced out of my teaching position. Well, I did wake up at Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx, which started an 11-month hospitalization at three different psychiatric facilities. In total, I was committed five times between 2019 and 2020. My mental health issues have many ingredients. Schizophrenia runs on my mother's side of the family, and anxiety and depression runs on my father's side of the family. I consider these to be genetic factors. In addition, there were many untimely deaths of close family members and friends during my formative years. It got to the point when every time the phone rang, I wondered who died. Also, my first memory of life 
was being brought to the cemetery to visit my uncle's grave. Between all those deaths and my father's hypochondria, the subject and awareness of death hit me at a young age. By age nine, I had my first major panic attack. It was an existential crisis. Everything felt out of control, and I was in a state of sheer terror. My body was trembling, my hands got numb, I had the cold sweats, and I was vomiting stomach bile. At age 14, I started therapy. That was in 1984. And by age 23, I started taking medications. These same panic attacks and intrusive thoughts about death would follow me for my entire life. After I was committed for the fifth time, I knew I was going to be there a while. And I was okay with it because I was finally getting the help that I felt I needed since I was 14. I have three sons. I can't imagine the damage that would have been done to them if I had killed myself. I knew I didn't want to leave my sons and that I needed to stay alive for them. I was willing to try anything, including going through 15 rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise known as shock treatment. Also, the other important and critical thing I felt I needed to do was to call my sons every night from the hospital. We would talk about their day, I would make jokes, and this kept the consistency of our relationship alive. Before I had children, I wanted to get better from me, but now it was all about them. When you're committed to a psychiatric hospital, it's not like prison, but you still can't leave. I remember thinking, holy crap, I'm really locked in this place. And there's some panic that goes with that. But I voluntarily gave up my freedom in order to get better. You're told when you can eat, when you can watch TV, when you can shower, do laundry, or anything else you do in everyday life had a schedule that you had to adhere to or else you couldn't do it. I tried over 21 medications over my life. In my opinion, there's three main reasons why patients at psychiatric hospitals are over-medicated. To give you relief from your emotional pain, to stop you from hurting yourself, and to keep you heavily sedated if you're violent. For whichever the reason, you still end up feeling like a zombie. There's many problems in the mental health system, however, there are positive aspects. I did meet many psychology candidates, behavior health associates, and nurses who would take the time to talk to me about my feelings and learn about the human condition. The nurses would remind me daily that I was there to get better for my sons. One day, my psychologist suggested that I start journaling and she gave me a three-paragraph assignment to write about anything I wanted over a three-day period, one paragraph a day. Okay, at the end of the three days, I wound up writing 66 pages. That turned into me filling up three notebooks, which I wound up getting published. Yeah, thank you.
At first, I was just writing about me until I became more integrated with the other patients. I was interested in them, and then I became friendly with them. I was making friends. We became a close-knit group on our ward, and we shared many needed laughs together. I was opening up to them, and they were opening up to me. During group therapy sessions, I found that my friends were coming to me for my opinions or would approach me when having a rough day and needed someone to talk to. I realized that, that I was learning about the more severe mental illnesses from the people who had them. I also realized that with all the years of therapy that I've been through and all the research that I did for myself, that what I was saying to my friends mattered and had a positive impact. It reminded me of when I was a school teacher and my students would tell me that I should have been a psychologist or a guidance counselor. I can't describe the feeling I would get when someone would thank me for helping them feel a little bit better. And sometimes a little bit better goes a long way. And we also watched a lot of Family Feud. After I was discharged in July of 2020, I didn't know what to do with myself in terms of employment. I did everything from loading trucks for Federal Express to training to become a home inspector. I can't recall when I learned about what a peer specialist is and what they do. These are people who are living with or who have lived with a mental health condition. Their job is to help people in recovery put their lives back together in coordination with therapists and social workers. The importance of a peer specialist is that the client has the ability to talk to somebody who's walked in their shoes and may understand their feelings more than other professionals. It makes the client feel more comfortable and accepted. Peer specialists share what they know and what they've been through. I then realized that with all the feedback that I was getting in the hospital that was positive and everything that I've been through, that I could finally make use of my condition. That light bulb over my head, it turned on. Take your experiences and turn them into a career. In the fall of 2022, I completed my training. In January of 2023, I was hired by The Bridge Mental Health and Housing Solutions, and I'm part of their peer specialist team. I make home visits to clients, or we meet virtually. With my current caseload, I help clients enroll in adult education programs to help, their, to help them get their GED. I advocate for clients who are getting jobs, and I help clients address their mental health issues and recover from past trauma. There are peaks and valleys that come with this job. For example, when I was prepping for this talk, one of my clients passed away. I was not prepared for that. Although this, this job is difficult, I feel it was the work that I was meant to do. Because my life hasn't been perfect, I feel that it gives me the ability to connect with my clients on a deeper level. And lastly, when I help someone, it makes me feel that all the negative experiences that I had in my life were not in vain. They were lessons. Thank you.
We just had the privilege of listening to Peter Vox's speech, My Anxiety and Depression Helps Others. I'm moved by Peter's willingness to open up about his struggles, including his suicide attempts and his battles with mental health, which are both brave and eye-opening. What struck me most was Peter's journey from the brink of despair to finding purpose and meaning. His commitment to his children to give them the strength to seek help, even when it seemed impossible. I was truly inspired by his resilience through multiple hospitalizations. Peter's exploration of journaling as a form of healing really resonated with me. The way he poured his thoughts into the page ultimately led to his publishing work, showcases, and therapeutic values of self-expression. It's incredible to think that his journey not only helped him heal, but also become an inspiration for others. I want to express my gratitude for being able to hear Peter's story. It's a reminder that our stories matter. They have the potential to heal, inspire, and foster a sense of community. Let's continue to share our journeys and support for one another, as Peter Vox just has done so beautifully. Thanks for joining me in this reflective moment. And remember, none of us are alone in our battles. Thank you for being with us on today's episode titled Recovery on the Speak Podcast. We have explored impactful talks that share remarkable, vulnerable, inspiring ideas and stories. And as we conclude, I just want to remind you, let's keep in the mind that these connections and moments of inspiration are what drives us forward. Join us again next week for more engaging talks as three new speakers will step up to the stage, standing in the spotlight to share their ideas and story. Until then, stay inspired and keep amplifying your voice. The Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak Event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and speak at work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.